Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The Joyner Jafrida Collection of Abstract Art is widely recognized as one of the most significant collections of modern and contemporary work by African and African diaspora artists. Four generations, the Joyner Jafrida Collection of Abstract Art draws upon the collection's unparalleled holdings to explore the critical contributions made by artists to the evolution of visual art in the 20th and 21st centuries. Extensively illustrated with hundreds of works in a variety of media and featuring scholarly texts by leading artists, writers, and curators, Four Generations gives an essential overview of some of the most notable artists and movements of the last century, up to and including works being made today. In honor of the book's publication, Pamela J. Joyner joins artists Leonardo Drew and Jenny C. Jones in this conversation, recorded on September 25, 2016, at the National Gallery of Art, as part of the series, The Collecting of African American Art. This is a, actually an interesting position for me to be in, because usually I'm on the other end of uh, being asked questions by uh, folks, but, you know, um, you know, the history of, uh, you know, like uh, collecting, and especially collectors of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a color, is for me, for my own history, my own personal history, like uh, I, my career started like in 92. It just was, I mean, the people who were collecting my work were not, you know, black folks. So it was interesting at this point to sort of like say, wow, you know, there's power, finesse, and intellect uh, uh, you know, within you know, like uh, the collecting community that's actually of color, and I was just curious, like, uh, what were the uh, things that got you interested in the very beginning in terms of like just collecting? What what was it that actually got you in here? Well, I mean, none of this has happened for us in a vacuum. Um, I mean, my collecting story, I could argue, even goes way back to my childhood in Chicago, going to the Art Institute, looking at, you know, the wonderful collection of Impressionist paintings and falling in love with art at that point in, in, in time. I won't sort of bore you all with that, but uh, I just offer myself as uh, the poster child for early education in the arts. So this goes way, way back. But then if I sort of roll the clock forward, um, it's interesting because some of these names came up when we were just having lunch. Uh, when I was at Harvard Business School, I met Lowry Sims. And Lowry was the first African-American collector at the Studio Museum, and she was there at the time. This was a lot of years ago. And she said to me, you're going to go do your Wall Street career and don't forget to collect art. And so when we first started out, we were doing what a lot of people have to do. We had you know, blank walls and houses to fill. Uh, and then it became clear to me through meeting different artists, most particularly Richard Mayhew, that there was a real story behind some of this work. Um, so we, in more recent years, the last decade, have put together, we have a strategy, we have a target list, we um, you know, have a mission. Ours is a really now become a mission-driven collection where we are endeavoring to reframe art history. Um, and so that's, that's kind of our, our journey and our story. Um, and we're you know, really inspired specifically by the two of you for a whole host of different reasons, but maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later. So 
I'm curious if when you when you befriend or in conversation with other collectors, do you see a difference um, in terms of particularly African American collectors uh, having more um, social political intention in their collection versus collecting what's hot but doing more historic excavating than other collectors? Do you see a, a shift at all or a difference? Um, you know, n n not really. I mean, you know, I think African-American collectors reflect the macrocosm of African-Americans. I mean, we're not a monolith. So different people have different points of view. Uh, and collecting is such a personal endeavor, I think that people's personalities and people's personal predispositions manifest in what it is mm. they collect. I mean, we, we love abstraction uh, in part because early African-American artists working in an abstract mode weren't supposed to be doing abstraction, you could argue. You know, the traditional art world expected the Jake Lawrences of the world, and Jake is not a good example, but expected the Norman Lewises of the world to you know, focus on figuration uh, because that material was easy to unpack if it was black material being done by black artists and the black community at the dawn of the civil rights movement had a similar expectation. Um, but so maybe I'm just a person who, you know, my whole life is defined by doing what I'm not supposed to do. Right. And so that <laughs> resonated with me. And with inside of that, uh, and it's a lot to unpack when we think about uh, who's, who was buying that work initially and, and how the Af if African-American artists felt compelled to work a certain way because otherwise they wouldn't be, the work wouldn't circulate and go out into the world. They're like, they had to have a signifier in the work in order exactly. for it to participate in the larger conversation of the art world. Exactly. And, which means that you then are in this wonderful position to go back I guess that's what I meant with like revisionist history and excavating and with a different kind of intention compared to some collectors to really reposition. Well, I mean, history. yeah, well, so that is, that is our mission and that is our intent, uh, is to go back and reveal those stories. But, but we, again, we are not working in a vacuum. We're working with the benefit of the collective assistance of the whole art world ecosystem. And the role that the two of you play prominently is that your careers are prominent. And so when the art world go, goes back to look at the Norm Lewis type careers, um, you're shedding a beacon, right, on those careers. Uh, so the art world is saying, well, who is the next Jenny C. Jones? And they can look backwards to figure that out. <laughs> Um, and so I think one reason we're seeing more attention paid to the earlier careers is because the artists working mid-career are having s so much success. Like? Um, you and you and Mark Bradford and Julie Maritou right. and um, Kerry James Marshall, even though he works in a, you know, um, a representational mode, and Ellen Atsui. Uh, so there, there are a whole group of people who but then we also get to see people like Sam Gilliam get their uh, come now. back, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and Jack Whitten, and, and we see like Jack exactly. Whitten on the cover of Art Forum not mm -hmm. too long, like two years ago, at seventy something years old, finally getting exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Anyway, I'm just out of uh, curiosity in terms of like, uh, like I mentioned Jack, uh, Jack Whitten, and his sort of like almost like a, I mean Jack has been laboring making art, serious art for a very long time. 
but uh, under this kind of like, a, you know, like that group of artists, Al Loving, Jack Whitten, Joe Overstreet, mm -hmm. they were just like, you know, not even like acknowledged as though they, you know, like that, that never happened, you know, but all of a sudden now, you know, there's this, this immediacy, this explosion of these artists, and it's, you know, like where do you sort of like as you're uh, uh, collecting and sort of uh, nurturing, you know, uh, 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 careers of artists, you know, how does that, you know, like, uh, you know, how do you sort of read, you know, like uh, this all of a sudden, it's, you know, like a recognition of these artists? So, you know, I actually think that it's important to understand or to at least have a theory about why they were overlooked to begin with, mm -hmm. right? So the artists you're talking about, um, for us in our collection, they're sort of the second generation artists. Their predecessors are, you know, Norm Lewis sure. and Alma Thomas and Charles Alston and Hale Woodruff. Um, and, you know, we start post-World War II and go up till yesterday. But that first generation really had to deal with, the, you know, sort of the oppressive nature of Jim Crow in a country that was in a radically different place. Um, a country and an art world that was in a radically different place. Uh, you know, the next generation are the Wittens, the Gilliams, the Overstreets, et cetera. Um, and they spent really most of their careers working in abstract mode. And they also were overlooked, right? But in order to have a career that has a beacon shining on it, I think you have to have a couple different ingredients. One, you have to have the distribution channel, right? And the first two generations of African-American artists really didn't have that. They didn't have consistent representation in the gallery system. So Norm Lewis, for instance, showed at the Willard Gallery early in his career. He had all the early markers of success. He was literally in conversation with the people who were um, making the building blocks of abstract expressionism of which he was one and he was overlooked in part because that gallery representation was, was inconsistent. And then there wasn't the consistent scholarship. And our book, while not you know, a you know, typically scholarly journal, our book is trying to address that to some extent, really to prompt additional serious research into some of these careers. But at the time, these artists were um, you know, burst onto the scene, and Sam and others of his generation, in those cases, it was the 1960s and 70s, you know, and then there's a generation prior that's deceased. There just hasn't been sufficient scholarship. I'll use Norman Lewis as an example again. He had his first monograph published last fall, 2015, <laughs> and Norman Lewis died in 1979. Yeah. So then, you gotta have, you know, you gotta have these critics slash curators, you know, and the institutional representation. And then you have to have the collectors. And unless you have all of those things working for you all of the time, that's how you get overlooked by history. And so now you're into a group of artists who, you know, you were in the Freestyle Show, was mm -hmm. it? And that yeah. was what? what 2001. What, 2001, you know, you really started, you know, exhibiting nationally and internationally a few years before that. 92. You guys, 92, <laughs> right, right, so okay. So 93 biennial, were you in 93? You, no. No. That, that was a big multicultural biennial, that's why, <laughs> okay. as a marker, okay. 93 But biennial. you guys have had, you know, I mean, you've got several books. I mean, you, know, you have the monographs, you have the dealer representation, you've been in the shows, you have the collector bases. And so that really is a roadmap 
for the environment to do what it has done. The reason that Jack and Sam and others of that generation are being recognized in part now is one, the work is unassailable, but, but you made the environment say, think that it's okay to go backwards and look. But then, you know, I mean, there are, you know, other parts of the system, I think, that are working to, in this virtuous cycle, that, you know, the purpose of our book and our collection is to unpack those stories. Um, you know, Daryl and Elliot and others have been working on these for years. There are other collectors. So it does take a village. It's not the, you know, the single effort of, you know, single individuals. Um, and you know, I wouldn't be sitting here today if an, another collector didn't say this is a worthwhile endeavor. And so I think there's just more cooperation and more um, insight that's being developed. You know, you, know, you guys have also um, had recent trips like to South Africa. And um, you've done this now for like how many years now, back and forth to South Africa? Um, you know, I've, I've been buying, South African art is a relatively newer strand for us. Uh, we've been col collecting non-U.S. diasporic art for about seven or eight years. And that really actually came as a result of us spending some time living in London, uh, where we discovered, you know, a whole nother group of careers. And it just struck us that this story of being careful not to have blind spots in collecting was a global one. Mm -hmm. uh, so then we started adding, and interestingly enough, and the British art that we own is almost all figurative. And I, and it wasn't by design. I just started buying what I liked, and then you know, sort of digging into those stories. What you realize about the British environment is that the British avant-garde has a long history of figuration, sure. um, black, white, green, or other. So in, in that vein, we own, you know, Yinka Shanabari and um, uh, Lynette Yai Dembowachi and Isaac Julian and others, and it, it's almost all figurative. Uh, and then we started getting introduced to the South African narrative, which is really a robust one because, you know, not unlike this country, there's a complex political history. Where you have complex political histories, I think you always have great art. There are a lot of great artists there. And in part because it's far away, in part because the economy had been so isolated until the early 90s, you, we just weren't very exposed to those stories. And when you start to delve into those stories, there's great art, great artists, and great stories. I think also like the era that Leonardo, that I was pointing to, 92, is that, that when the discourse opened up um, in school, for me, the, po the multicultural discourse came in the early 90s and that did shift our attention to thinking about things that were more global, to think about the diaspora, to read people like Stuart Hall and to have a better understanding of that. Do you, do you find uh, that you're leaning towards abstraction where did that come from? I mean, was it, I know that you also have um, not, more than most collectors, you have a lot of women artists in your collection. And um, you have a lot of women artists that kind of refuse to make the work about the body. And there's a lot of uh, a history of, of women art and they fall into this narrative of working with the body. Or ref but you seem to have women that refuse in some ways to work with the body. Is that part of? It, it, it is, and it, it, again, it, it came a little bit, not unconsciously, but sort of subconsciously. One, I like 
high formalism, which mm. is why I have a lot of your work and a lot of your work. <laughs> I mean, I, I, just, I just like that. And I like the underlying intellectual rigor, uh, the references to art history that it takes to, to make that work and to make that work in, exciting in this environment, mm. right? I mean, there's a lot of history that comes before that wonderful uh, image, but I see, you know, I mean, but there are some clear references to history, but it's your own language. Um, I like work that also has, um, in most cases, the direct hand mm -hmm. of the artist mm -hmm. involved. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't want to fall into the more expected narratives. Um, and I mean, I actually wish I had more women artists in the collection. In, in the early um, generations, there were just so very few. I mean, Alma yeah. Thomas was really, yeah. you know, one of the very, very few. And now there are others, you know. Either we were just speaking about Mavis. Mavis Pussy, who, who yeah. just, I mean, she's still living, actually. Yeah. And that work is really just being brought to the fore. Um, and, you know, some of the work that, um, you know, her greatest work was made in the 1960s. Yeah. It's really, really wonderful work. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I like that kind of um, surprise, defiance, and that which is unexpected. And then, um, for me, at least, you know, most of the women are, you know, sort of contemporaries or younger, so I get to call you up and ask you what it's about. <laughs> and when I do that, uh, it makes me really comfortable because because I can see the rigor of the content. Yeah. Um, so that's, that, that, that's really important. That's really important to us. So I noticed that like, uh, you've uh, developed uh, relationships, like personal relationships with a lot of the uh, artists that you collect. So how does that sort of like, you know, like uh, get you to sort of like realize that, okay, I have to have this artist. Does one come before the other usually, like meaning like you meet the artist and you say like, I really like this person. It's like, you know, and I'm now seeing something that I did not realize before in his work after meeting him or, you know, like going the other direction where it's like, you know, you know, it's like the art is great, you know, like, uh, but the personality is like, <laughs> how, how does that work? You know, is it important actually to have these things work, you know, like uh, symbiotically? Well, I mean, you actually are really responsible for some of my bad habits around us. <laughs> uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But <laughs> get to it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but this here, this right, right. I will tell you. But the, the, I mean, the very first artist I mentioned uh, that I got to know was Richard Mayhew, and you know, because a lot of the stories weren't written down, they weren't recorded in a way that we all would have liked to have seen them recorded. Richard really told me these stories about these early generations of artists and the struggles that they encountered, some of whom were alive and some of them who were not, of whom were not alive. Uh, and that really just sparked my interest in pursuing sort of the strategy that we pursue. Um, but I think you really taught me how important it is to watch how artists work. So Leonardo was, we, uh, you know, a number of years ago we started running uh, an artist residency uh, um, adjacent to our home in Sonoma, California. And so you were the first one. And we learned a lot about you, whether <laughs> you know it or not. So Leonardo works 20 or 21 hours a day. Our, we leave our door open, he'd come over for 45 minutes for dinner sometimes. He didn't stay 60 minutes. He would stay for 45 minutes. 
this is wine country. We have a lot of <laughs> bottles of wine in our cellar. Leonardo doesn't drink. What Leonardo does is he works. He works all the time. And so that first time, I don't know if you even remember, the materials did not arrive. And so in, when, when Leonardo arrives, so I guess you're getting fidgety. So he sort of canvasses the area, and that was found material, sorry. Canvasses the area and starts making stuff, and the outcome is distinctly Leonardo's language. It's unmistakably the language, but it's the straw that causes brush fires that you read about in California. Um, and, but it had to look like that. I mean, it, I mean, he made it look like that. Um, and so we said, oh my gosh, I mean, this is creative genius at work. And so that was really a revelation, really a revelation. And then we, then we liked you. <laughs> right? But that's not a prerequisite. That's not a prerequisite. It's not a prerequisite. Um, but then we liked you, and then we learned how you think about this stuff. And again, it's not necessarily, there's more writing about you than there is about a lot of the artists in our collection, but what's been written is not necessarily how you work precisely. Mm -hmm. um, and you can, I mean, it is evident to watch Leonardo work that you were a, you know, prodigy, right? A childhood prodigy. Mm -hmm. And then when you told those young children at some lecture you gave that, I mean, these are MFA students, and Leonardo's lecturing to MFA students and says, throw every skill you had out the door, throw it all away. <laughs> because early on, Leonardo was, you know, sort of a master illustrator and draftsman, like when you were a teenager. And that just was too easy, mm -hmm. so you decided to throw that away and not do that until you found another language. Mm -hmm. And the gasp was palpable in the room. I mean, these <laughs> students said, oh my God, this is not what we're about at all. <laughs> uh, so, so, but it was just, I mean, but the, the, the authenticity of that is, I mean, it just resides everywhere mm -hmm. in the work. And then Jenny Jones is, you, I, I met her in her house, okay? She is a perfectionist. I'll never forget it. Right? She's, I mean, she's a perfectionist. You know, she can move this speck of dust from here to there. And if, if it's supposed to be there, that's where it's supposed to be. And, and so, and you see that in the meticulous nature of the work. So those are all key insights that inform, how can that not inform the collecting? Now, there are artists who I think are great artists, who I don't particularly like as people, who we own deeply <laughs> in the collection. But it's, also, it's always more fun if you like the person and if you love the work. And when you know the person, you see other things in the work. Yeah. Um, and we really think of ourselves as stewards. I mean, we're just the conduit. We, well, we obviously won't own it for the rest of you know, human existence on Earth. We get to show it for a short period of time. And so our obligation is to steward the work, to showcase the work, to put the work in the, in the best light possible. And the benefit of getting to know artists is it gives you the tools through which you can do that. Yeah. And I used to call you the unicorn because of that. Uh, after you came to my, my little apartment, and, and I think you ended up getting works that were literally hanging over my bed, and you were like, that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was mortified and excited at the same time. 
But I remember, you know, we were saying this before, the first time we spoke on the phone, and, and you said just that, and you said that you considered yourself a steward of the work. And I get choked up thinking about it, because it, you are rare, and, and not a lot of collectors think that way. I'd say a small percentage of collectors are really mindful about the, the long game, the history of the work, and all the intention and passion that went into the work, hopefully, if that, that's the kind of work as it should be, and not you know many other hands making it for the marketplace to be flipped a million times, which is out there. But um, we've never sold a piece of art, not one, right. not ever. No. Um, we have traded. We traded three for two, um, and the artist was involved in it, and the dealers all collaborated. And what we were trying to do is upgrade the holding so we could showcase the work better. This and is the same artist, though. Same artist. Okay. Same artist. Uh, and we own this artist pretty deeply, but I started buying that work 20 years ago before I really could discern what was optimal and what was less optimal. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we're really in it only for the long game right. because I'm not talented like you guys are. <laughs> um, but um, we collect in part, and we feel like we should collect and tell these stories because we can. And that's our little job in the ecosystem. And our goal is to try to make a difference, try to move the needle, try to reframe the history for those who were overlooked and for those who were not overlooked, try to properly contextualize the work. And we think culture is more inclusive and better off as a result. So, you know, on my little tombstones, and maybe somebody <laughs> will write some of that, and that would be great for me. And then it'll pass, and we, and we also, you know, are active now in donating the work to institutions who we think are like-minded. Um, and so people who will not just put it in the dark in the basement, but people who will showcase the work and hang it in the full context of the full arc of the art canon. Um, and so it's really, I mean, and that is our mission, and you know, that's yeah, sorry our value. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but when you say, okay, you, you're, when you're working towards like getting this art into certain institutions, is there a way to steer, like, I mean, like, how do you actually get them to take, not have the work put in the basement, but actually be seen? How does that work? How does that work? Well, I mean, again, I think this comes back to your question about, you know, what your relationships are and who do you like and who do you work with. One, I think that it's that part of it has to do with the relationships with the institutions and the individuals who are in leadership positions mm -hmm. in the institutions. I do I cannot force feed. I'm not interested in force feeding. Mm -hmm. Uh, work into any particular place. People have to be really excited about having it, and they have to be really excited about how it fits their institutional goals, their collection, their narrative. Um, and so you try to make, I mean, we, you know, there's a couple institutions where I'm deeply involved, and a number of institutions where I'm, you know, have various degrees of involvement. Um, but I think not only of the institution, but of the individuals. And, you know, I've read a lot about what it was like in the 1960s and beyond for artists of color trying to make a way into these institutions, how many obstacles there were. But I must say, in today's climate, I find the curatorial teams are very, very, very uh, embracing. Uh, 
Now, some will want work that has more political content. Some will want work that is high conceptualism. Everybody has their own taste. And so one of my jobs is to figure out that and to just have the conversation. How will this be shown? You know, how will this be framed? Is this, I mean, framed in terms of the context, not in terms of the physicality. Mm -hmm. But, you know, how will you use this work and is it constructive for me to give this work to you? How can I help you, the institution? Um, and I have a lot of those conversations. And so, you know, our, our book in part is a thank you note to the scholars who have informed our collecting perspective. Um, and then, you know, it gets to be a little bit of a symbiotic thing, right? I want to serve up what it is they're interested in being served, mm. right? And so every, that's a win-win for everybody. But in that sense, you know, the, as, as abstraction comes back into vogue and through the cycle and abstraction starts to take uh, its proper place, abstraction by African-American artists, then you are functioning in that ecosystem as you refer to it and to push that conversation. So it's kind of, a, is it a two-way street where you're getting them excited because of your collection and then your collection is growing because of the excitement? It is, it is, it is, it is there is definitely that dynamic going on. Yeah. Definitely that dynamic going on. So it's interesting you reference that Jack Witten uh, art forum cover. Um, a well-known curator who I really have in, hold in high regard, but I don't know that I have permission to name his name, so I won't, looked at that painting, looked at that cover, thought it looked like a Richter, and when I told him it wasn't a Richter, he wanted to unpack that story right. and did. And that museum now owns Jack's work and where, whereby it previously didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting so, also when you show the date of the Witten compared to the Richter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's like 30 yeah. years before. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, and, and you know, we own some of that early 70s Richter, I mean, um, rather Witten work where, you know, Jack is using rakes and squeegees and in some cases Afro combs to, mm -hmm. you know, move across the canvas and, you know, then Richter comes, you know, at least 15 years later. And that does not to diminish right. the efficacy of the Richters. It's just that there are a number of artists in that generation who uh, don't get sufficient credit for their innovations. In our book, we show uh, Ed Clark that was made in the 1950s mm -hmm. that hangs in the Art Institute of Chicago, as a matter of fact, this is an illustration. And that's sort of the first known shaped canvas, but Frank Stella, gets credit as um, being the pioneer there, whereas you know the work, again, is really important, and I'm not intending to diminish the importance of Stella, but, but Clark is just now getting credit for that kind of innovation. So that's all part and, of... Uh, I think also of Stanley Whitney, who's been around for so long. Stanley Whitney's been around for a long time as well. And so you know that's all part of our mission, is just to reveal those stories. And when you reveal those stories, you know, the, the art world is, and institutions are full of rigorous scholars, you know, doing rigorous scholarship, and they're intrigued by these stories. So, I mean, it really has been, you know, a wonderful journey. Uh, but, I, but I didn't finish the story, that very same curator said to me recently, you used to know more about these artists than I did. Now I know more about these artists than you do. And I said, all is right with the world. I'm an MBA, not a PhD. <laughs> so, so, so now I can, I can calm down because all is right with the world. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's just a really exciting moment 
uh, to have some of these innovations uh, revealed. I mean, one of the you know the, the most you know exciting practitioners is local to Washington. You know, Sam Gilliam reinvents painting when he takes those paintings off the stretcher in the early 1970s and hung them, you know, off the sides of buildings and or wherever. And so to see Sam get his due now is um, really, really, really rewarding and really exciting. Absolutely. Would you say that you use like a um uh, a diviner rod or something that's sort of, I mean, I've seen it. <laughs> I'm always curious, like, okay, are you working with curators or what? I mean, like, just because I've been in all the homes and seen, the, I mean, powerful work. It's just like, pow, pow, pow. So it's like, she's not losing. It's just like, so she must have something in her purse or something, a diviner rod. So she can tell when it's great art, you know? So it's like, what, how do you do that? How do you do it? I have a lot of help. Um, you know, again, Artists are great um, indicators of, of other artists' work. So, you know, I mean, you both may remember me asking you at different times, who do you like? Mm. And then I go out and research those people, and very often I buy them. Then I want to know who your influences, influencers are and who your teachers are. And so, Jenny, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. I was at the Biennial in Venice last year, and I was sitting next to Mel Edwards, and he talked about, you know, what a talented student you were and how wonderful the work was. And I mean, and I knew about your relationship with Jack, and so I don't even look at your work and see it as sculpture. I see it as your language, but I see it as abstract painting, mm -hmm. um, informed in some, to some extent by the prior generation, but in your own complete style. So, so, I, so it's sort of those kinds of referrals. Other collectors are always helpful. Um, but you know, given what we have been drawn to collect, it's not like I can call up, you know, dial 1-800-ART-ADVISOR. I mean, they just, they just didn't exist when we started putting this collection together 20 years ago. So I had to cobble together um, people who would advise me. Laurie pointed me in that direction. Thelma's been helpful. I mean, you can blame a long list of, you know, curators in the institutions who have been helpful and who've been willing to give me opinions on on people, so it's you know it's sort of a stew of. I have to say again, that's the kind of mindfulness that that that's why I called you the unicorn. And a lot and a lot of collectors <laughs> are going to do that or be in, interested in engaging with sort of uh, what the contemporary dialogues are um, from the institutional standpoint. So much as going uh, to the other level of like Chelsea shoppers, but to really look at the at the more of the uh, institutional frameworks for what's what the conversations are focusing on. Well, you know, our whole effort, is, it does have this overarching mission of, you know, making sure the stories are contextualized in the full context of the canon. So, one, you got to understand what the canon is, right? And so I go to a lot of shows, a lot of museums, a lot of things. Uh, and then I'm trying to figure out where you and you and others fit in that, in that canon. And so, so I, I just don't know how to do it any other way. Should we take a couple questions? Is this your work you collected on the screen there? No, no, this is, this is a, um, a show that's up now in New York um, that is actually a two-person show with these two artists. And, and, and that's kind of you know, interesting, because when we set all this dialogue up, 
we didn't know that the two of them were going to be doing a show <laughs> together. Um, but no, this is um, and this is their show that's up now. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But a good cross. We have I don't know in, in our book. Uh, we have, I don't know, 180 images of works that are in our collection. Such a great so it's cross-section of, you know, highlights of, of what's in the collection. And then we'll, what we'll do with this also is the book is designed to be a bit of a, a, a backdrop to a traveling exhibition that we are organizing for next year. Uh, and that, that show is being curated by the two curators <coughs> who are curating the U.S. Pavilion and the Venice Biennale next year, Chris Bedford uh, and Katie Siegel. So, and again, it's just sort of further to, um, you know, the mission of trying to be a good steward of the work. And all the things you have collected thus far, are they in a separate place where people can go see them? They're in our homes. And we, we kind of live with the art, and it's pretty densely curated. No curator uh, would put it together quite the way we put it together, but, you know, you have the four walls um, that weren't designed to be a museum. They were designed to be, you know, practical living spaces, and we do the best we can uh, with the spaces we have. But our effort to share that uh, is a, this book, and B, um, um, the show that we are doing is, being, is um, being organized by the Ogden Museum and will uh, open uh, in New Orleans in October of 2017. And so that will also be highlights of our collection, and it's meant to travel to several venues um, from there for a couple of years. Well, we just gave one piece to Dartmouth. Um, uh, we, there are some of the works that are in the book that have uh, been donated to various institutions. So I'm involved with Tate Modern, and I um, have donated several works to them. I'm on the board of the Art Institute of Chicago, and we're sending a number of works to them. Um, we're in the process of putting together something of a package of work. So there's an artist who I promised years ago that I would donate all of his work to one institution, and we will do that sooner rather than later. So, you know, we have to be mindful of, you know, sort of the planning process. Uh, I'd love to live forever, but I don't think that's probably in the tarot cards, and I don't have any control over it. So, you know, some of it, we have to be fair to our heirs, and some of it will go to them. But I'd say it's likely, no, we're not sure, but it's likely that some fair cross-section of the work will go to institutions. And those, and those, those conversations are really interesting, right? So I do ask, what do you need? What hole does it fill? How will it be hung? Um, you know, where does it fit in the context of what else you do? What, you know, what are your future plans? So for instance, there's a young South African artist, conceptualist, um, who we've been collecting, and we've promised some work by him to the Art Institute of Chicago, and they next month are doing a show of his work. Um, and so, and Chicago does have this conceptualist bent, and so that's sort of a virtuous cycle, all of that sort of working together. So yeah, we'll give a fair amount of it away. 
Can you talk about uh, Norm Lewis and Spiral and the attack on the Met? I yeah, I can. I remember in 68 when they did Harlem on, on well, all of that actually is the real genesis of what we do. So I, I, when I got to know Richard Mayhew when I was in business school, he told me, he was, he was, there are two remaining living members of Spiral, Richard and Emma Amos. And Emma, unfortunately, um, you know, suffers from dementia. Richard is 93. He's coming to our book launch from California. <laughs> uh, and he's the one who told me these stories. He said, you really should understand Spiral. And most of those Spiral artists, or many of them, you know, Romare Bearden was an exception, decided they would work in this abstract mode. And so that, it was that story, that story of Spiral, that set us on this path, this particular path. Um, and, you know, and those guys, you know, just wouldn't be denied. There was no reinforcement for what they did. They were like the two of these artists. They're just authentic. They were just purists. They had no concept of being rewarded financially because it just wasn't in the offing for them. Mm. Uh, and they were, they were really an inspiration. And so, you know, and th but that whole spiral story, and Susan Cahan's written a really interesting book that came out maybe three months ago called Mounting Frustration. It's all about that point in time when um, you know, the Met set out to do uh, a, sh a show of African-American artists and hung photojournalism. And Norm Lewis and the whole Spiral group was out front of the Met protesting, right? And then the Whitney tried to rectify the situation by doing a series of shows by African-American artists. There were 13 or 14 of them. And, you know, Mel had a show, and Jack had a show, and Frank Bowling, who was really British, couldn't get any traction for the career in the UK, so was living in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Um, they all had shows. And then there was this unfortunate group show that came in the middle. And, you know, people were very upset that the, the show was, while well-intentioned, was under-curated. So in reaction to that, for, for example, Frank Bowling makes a painting called Mel Edwards Decides. <laughs> and what that painting was about was there were a number of those artists that decided whether they were going to stay in that group show or pull out of that group show. So Mel stayed in, Sam Gilliam pulled out because there was a controversy around how the show was curated. And so one of the things that's really rewarding for us is, so the, one of the endorsements that's been written for our book is by Sheena Wagstaff, who's the senior contemporary curator for the Met. And so the Met's, you know, we've come a long way baby, so to speak, right? Um, and so the Met is very, and they're doing a Carrie James Marshall show, and they're actively looking to, you know, diversify what's on their walls by, I sit on their uh, contemporary committee uh, along with other colleagues interested in African American art, and there is a genuine openness. Um, and so, you know, some of the artists who protested outside of these institutions are now being feted and shown. Uh, and so I think we are, we're coming full circle. However, um, you know, you can't make 100% progress in a short period of time. I think the president said that yesterday. And so diligence is required. And so that we're, what we're endeavoring to do is to provide some of the diligence um, so that uh, we can continue this progress to be upward and to the right. When you collect with another person, um, there must be
lengthy negotiations going on some time. I'm curious, with your collecting partner, uh, what are your rules? How do you how do you arrive at decisions? Well, he's sitting here. He's sitting right over <laughs> there. just thinking. And um, I mean, I, I'd let you speak if you had a mic. Uh, but Fred described. Okay. <laughs> uh, Fred describes himself as uh, the limited partner. That, and it is his view that uh, there should be one decision maker. I mean, we've all seen buildings and maybe artwork and other messes designed by committees. Committees generally don't work. So. Um, Actually, on the, on the acquisition front, you know, I mostly make the decisions. But now, if you're a limited partner, what that means is you have both limited decision-making input and limited financial liability. Uh, so, so, I mean, that's just, that's just the reality. Um, so I, so, but in recent years, Fred's really kind of caught this bug in part because of the people sitting on my left and right. I mean, you just don't know how you affect our and inspire our lives. Uh, and so now he's into it, um, which could cause a decision-making um, uh, <laughs> issue. But I will thank my husband for a lot of things, but for one thing in particular. What he says to me is, he says, whatever you're buying, whether it's the historical figures or, you know, young ones just out of the block. I mean, you know, I, we've got 28-year-old artists in our collection now. Um, whatever it is you buy, buy the work that is iconic. And so I really do look at everything with that lens because that's the stuff that will stand the test of time. Is it iconic to this artist's eye? Uh, the, the, so so there's, there's that part. Now, interestingly, I would offer that I have less to do with um, the deaccessioning of art, which is the, the, the question of to whom do we donate the art. Uh, one, my husband's, I'm an MBA by training, my husband's a lawyer by training, and so he's smarter about estate planning than I am. Uh, under the assumption that neither of us will live forever. Um, and so he quietly has um, um, a lot more opinion on that. Does that answer the question? Thank you. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about the, as far as like you need a collector, the distribution, and the scholarship. Yes. So I was wondering if you could discuss kind of the interplay between those, because I feel like if you're to be a collector, you need to be also very, like have some scholarship in the area you're collecting to collect well. Well, yeah, I mean, so I think that if, if you are just beginning to collect art, my um, view of what, you know, young collectors should do, and I didn't do this consciously, I did it kind of unconsciously, is the first collection you should have is a book collection. And I didn't realize how many art books I owned until I had to write a bibliography for a book. So I can tell you I own 650 art books. Um, and so I think you've got to do the reading. And then, you know, the next order for me is if you have direct access to the scholars. And scholars are pretty accessible people, right, uh, I've discovered. And so sometimes I just email people and ask them about what they've written. And um, amazingly, they will email you back. Uh, so I think, I think, it's, I think it's important to, to do the homework. So that's what's fun about the art world, right, is that it's a community of learners. There's always new stuff to learn. Uh, and even if you're very knowledgeable, even if you're expert, there's always new things to learn. So yeah, that's an essential part.
of the process. Yeah. I think about that a lot, actually. So in, in much of our work and in a lot of the art, um, how shall I put it? Um, let's use the local example who has you know, work in that museum. Let's use Sam Gilliam again. The fact of Sam Gilliam's existence as a working artist uh, in the 1960s was absolutely subversive because there wasn't anybody like him. He was an absolute pioneer. And so he's a shining example of what is possible. Um, so, I mean, and Norman Lewis, I would say the same. For an African-American man in the 1940s to be, to have at least the early markers that any internationally successful artist should have, even though you know, it was hard for him to keep it consistent, or it, was, it wasn't him, it was the environment. Um, that, I mean, I think that that is an inspiration and a roadmap. So when I was your son's age, going to the Art Institute of Chicago, I loved a Picasso and a Seurat, a huge Seurat, this huge Seurat, that even as I got to be big, it didn't get smaller. You know how things are, that you're, don't get, get to be smaller when you get bigger. Um, I didn't see myself. I didn't see myself in the images. I didn't see myself in the makers. But your son can go these places and explore what is possible just by virtue of who made it. Mm. So then there are other, and, and the fact that some of the makers are now free not to be required to have, to be defined by having explicit political content in the work, and that think, is liberating. I think that's a, a huge uh, paradigm shift that, uh, that I've lived through, and certainly Leonardo. And back to what Pamela was saying, like uh, about being a purist, um, it takes uh, a lot of courage for me to, to make the kind of work that I wanted to make, and not the kind of work that was expected of me as a woman of color. And, and within that courage, everything happened. Everything began to unfold because I was sort of being more truthful to my aesthetic and to my opinion. And when I was, uh, I did a conversation with Stanley Whitney at the Studio Museum, um, and the questions, even though we were looking at Stanley's grid work and it's about color and it's about all of these other kind of aesthetic decisions, 
um, and very much painting about painting. Um, you know, he kept getting these questions like, well, does the black square in the left corner mean something? And, and Stanley, if you've ever heard him talk, is just like, man, you know, you're crazy. Like, he, <laughs> he said he literally had the moment where in Harlem, in his studio, where the Black Panthers were knocking on his door and saying, what the fuck are you doing in here? Like, come, come out to the streets with us. And he said, man, I'm trying to figure out Goya's red <laughs> right now. And, and for that kind of courage to make that space and to know that there is uh, this, uh, this place of possibility that where you put your politics, where you put your money, where you volunteer uh, at your church, or what you do in your life doesn't have to, to directly feed into your studio, into your hands. Um, and I think that is an important space that we're starting to talk about more and more, that your politics can be yours, but your studio practice can be just as free as, as, any, uh, as any white male artist. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so this is, and I know you have a view on this too, but to me, these are windows into a world of unlimited possibility. I know you have a view on well, this. Well, Leonardo, you're the pioneer. You're one of the pioneers, of absolutely a pioneer. Oh boy, and still pioneer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, what about your cotton works? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, come on, it's like, well, talk about that. Well, I mean, um, honestly, um, it, it, you know, this, I guess, the uh, Rubel show has really reignited uh, this situation, or at least the piece that I created back in 1992, mm -hmm. and one of the very few, I think. There's only maybe two or three cotton works that I created all at that time, or at least building up to this wall that the Rubels own, and that's in the 30 American show. So of course, they, uh, whenever the show travels, they like to contact the artists, and me in particular, to sort of come and talk about this cotton wall. It has everything to do with the, uh, the environment that we're sort of like now, sort of like enveloped by in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, 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 art politics and uh, who are we and and it's 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 an interesting sort of uh, a, a, you know situation that has developed you know in terms of like you know if you're an artist of color uh, uh, not saying that the uh, works that are being created aren't uh, potent works that actually are about identity there are a lot of uh, art that's actually truthful and about identity I agree uh, with you. You know, and, and, and I'm not saying anything negative about that work. It's just that I'm not really interested in going to talk about a, you know, cotton wall, you know what I mean, that I created. You know, I went through an exorcism with that, you know, uh, that work, and I don't feel I have to sort of continue to uh, 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 be that person mm -hmm. because I'm already sort of like transformed into like a number of other uh, uh, situations, and I'm growing, yeah. and I'm not stuck in that place. Um, so to go back and sort of like do this as a sort of like a dance, I'd say I'm not interested in doing that dance. So I refuse to sort of go and talk about that. Um, you know, life is alive and it moves, it shifts. And an art life is actually one that's visual. So as I'm sort of creating, you know, like, follow me, please. <laughs> yeah. I'm really not, you know, like, uh, and, and find yourself in the work, you know? I mean, even in cotton, I mean, you know, that material, we can find ourselves, it's a mirror. So, um, and I, I think, you know, like for me, my work actually is exactly that, it's reflective. So it's like, it's whoever's standing in front of it, you know, you know like uh, your, your opinion on it is just viable. Mm.
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I had a question about uh, what you see as trends or topics that link Africa and African American work for artists. Um, you know, art really uh, is um, something that stresses what binds us together what, rather than those notions that separate us. And so as I talk to artists and buy art not created in the U.S., I'm struck by those narratives. Um, and so, I mean, for instance, um, I, I saw a drawing recently by Chris Ophelia. It's a series of drawings by Chris Ophelia, um, actually, that were um, homages to Norman Lewis. Um, in South Africa, there is uh, a whole set of curiosities about, particularly about this generation of artists. Leonardo, Jenny C. Jones, Mark Bradford, Julie Maratu. Um, and they're all grappling with similar issues. How do I make what it is I wish to make that's true to me. Will I, can I, can I do that sort of with a sense of authenticity and freedom? And so I just, I think that there are very few boundaries. Um, and so that's, that's really informs our collecting strategy. And now what you have too is that um, the, the art market is so global. So I can buy almost all of the South African artists I buy in London or in New York or Basel or wherever. And they're just part of the broader conversation. Broader conversation what? You know, I mean, just the, the whole broader conversation about what is contemporary, um, and what is authentic. And, you know, some of the work will have social political content, even though it, it, for us it also has to have a sensibility of uh, formalism and usually abstraction, but not always. Um, I think I speak for everybody in thanking Pamela, Jenny, and Leonardo for this wonderful conversation. <laughs> This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 